Hello all and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. I am one of the hosts. I am Dr. Cole and I have Dr. Fitz. We both co-host this podcast and we try to go over high yield orthopedic topics. And this topic of the day, we're actually going to talk a little bit about the Achilles tendon. Now, before we get into it, you all, if you are listening and this is your first time, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. I'm sure you all know by now, but we do have a YouTube channel that goes along uh, with all of our audio. So that's going to be at Nailed It Ortho. And we also have Nailed It Clips, which kind of just show, you know, five, six minute clips from the episode. Again, that's a kind of a visual if you want to see some slides some pictures, some x-rays. And if you all can, please take a second out of your day or even right now, if you can, to go and leave us a review and rate in iTunes or however you listen to us. If it's Google Stitcher, if it's on Spotify, please go and leave a review. That would help us out a bunch. We are trying to get our reviews up. Now, a little bit into today's episode, we have Dr. Adam Bitterman, and he's going to talk to us a little bit about Achilles tendon disorders. A little bit more about him. He completed his orthopedic surgery residency at North Shore, uh, Plainview Orthopedic Consultorium, and then he went to Rush University Medical Center in Chicago, Illinois, where he completed his foot and ankle fellowship training. While in Chicago, he actually worked alongside a team physician for the Chicago Bulls, as well as the Chicago White Sox, and he won the Jorge A. Galante Research Fellow Award for his work on Achilles tendinosis. So long story short, he definitely knows what he's talking about. And you will see that this episode is a lot different, or at least a little bit different, is because he actually came with his own slides. So um, it's kind of like he gave the Grand Rounds talk and we were there interjecting and speaking with him. But this is a different format than what we are normally used to. But nonetheless, we hope you all enjoy our episode with Dr. Bitterman. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Dr. Bitterman, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. We are happy to have you. So glad you took the time out of day to come on the show. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks, guys, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, no, of course, no problem. And we typically like to start off our shows for all of our, our listeners that are uh, repeat listeners listening again. They know we start off asking a couple of questions, getting to know our guests or our speakers a little bit more. So first question I have for you, um, is there any, you know, looking back at it now, is there any advice that you would give yourself during residency or say when you just first started, you say, oh, I wish I would have known that or, you know, anything that encouraging words, whatever it may be? So that's a million dollar question. I, I would tell myself then, keep your eyes open. I know many people are set on their specialty of choice, but I was a late bloomer. I didn't choose foot and ankle until really close to the end, uh, end of third year, early fourth year, around when uh, application times were due. So don't, don't close yourself out. Don't sell yourself short. Also, uh, explore. So be uh, be ready to say yes to to the opportunities that are presented to you, uh, whether that be a book chapter, a research project, um, an extra project on the weekends. Obviously, 
you want to uh, manage your time appropriately. But uh, saying yes can go a long way. And then eventually you'll have to learn how to say no. But for, for residents that are out there trying to uh, get their feet wet into various projects, learning how to say yes is important. Yep, I think that's a, a good point to make. I, I just feel like you have to be kind of, you know, just ready to take on some new things, even if it take you out your comfort zone a little bit, you never know what might come from it. So uh, great advice to, 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 to give out. Uh, my question is something, you know, just kind of totally outside of orthopedics and things like that. But, you know, with everything that's been going on with the pandemic, we've been really, uh, you know, just really caught up with COVID and stuck in our little zone, in our little bubbles. We haven't been able to travel and things like that. What is, or I guess, where is one of the places you think you might go as soon as everything is somewhat back to normal? I think I'd want to explore more of the West Coast. Uh, I'm an East Coast guy through and through. I spent a year in the Midwest for my fellowship. I've been out to California, but I think some of the national parks in uh, Nevada, Colorado, excuse me, uh, California again, uh, those are places that I'd probably want to explore. And then also Montana, while it's not fully West Coast, it's more West than, than I've been. Uh, so I, I would want to explore there. I'd want to keep it in the United States, but explore further West. Great. I dig that. I love it. Yeah, go ahead, Jay. Sound like you're about to say something. Oh, no, I was just going to say, yeah, same. I haven't really done a, you know, a whole lot on the uh, West Coast besides I went to LA and I've been to San Diego once too. Uh, actually, I think Cody, were you, yeah. were you there too? We both, yeah. we both went there, huh? Yeah, yeah we, we did. We both went there. So yeah, he actually, we, when I went to LA, Cody was there uh, and then San Diego. But yeah, outside of that, you know, and I, I know people are like, oh, that's enough. But I, you know, I really haven't spent a lot of time in either one of those places and I really enjoyed uh, both of them really. It's really beautiful, beautiful place to me. Yeah, good times. And, and they have a different way about life. They approach life totally different, differently than how we do on the East Coast. Yeah, it's a lot of different vibes over there, um, which I liked. It was great. And so the last question we have here um, is, have there, this is the first time we're asking this question, so maybe it'll be a good question. I don't know. We'll see. So, but are there any habits that you've kind of developed as an attending that you didn't necessarily have as like a resident? Um, yeah. Any, any habits or things that you, that you do now that you didn't do before? I've learned a lot about time management and I realized that I was atrocious at it uh, in, in residency. Uh, and that could be from a variety of, of factors. I started a family as a chief, um, but then family life really kicked in as an attending. So I think I really built my time management skills and, and they're still far from where they need to be because I always get my, my wife calling me, where are you, why aren't you home? So that never ends, but at least I'm able to manage it a little bit better. Um, other habits is, is trying to compartmentalize what I'm doing. In residency, you're kind of getting thrown uh, things your way at all different hours uh, of all different subject matters. Now, if I have an administrative task, I put that in my administrative folder mentally. If I have a paper that I'm working on, I tuck that into a different file. And then during my free time, I'll go into one of those uh, areas and try and tackle it one at a time. The days of multitasking like a resident where you're managing the open fracture in the ER, the uh, chest pain post uh, femoral nailing on the floor, 
you know, you got to be able to do that. And that's what makes a successful resident and ultimately a really good position. But now with some of the other tasks that I'm handed as, as an attending, uh, the times have changed. Yep. And when you're going through that stuff as a resident, you don't, you know, I'm still going through it, but when you're going through that stuff, you don't recognize it as much, but yeah, I think it really does help you in the long run. Just even being able to, you know, like you say, just manage so much at one time and, and do them efficiently. It's, it's very uh, helpful for our careers. And one uh, other thing I'd say is it's in residency, it's very easy to just push things off and say, oh, I'll get that training and fellowship or I'll get exposure to that case and fellowship or I'll see it as an attending. You don't always want to stay late, especially as you advance in your program. But think twice about that because you you never understand the importance of training and that safety blanket until it's gone. And then you're dealing with that case that makes your sphincter clench and your yeah. you you don't have that, <laughs> that backup. So you know, we laugh and I laugh too, and we all did it, but that would be another thing that I would tell myself as a resident now. Yep. That was something uh, Cody learned when I first taught him how to ride a bike. When I, ah, I there loved, we go. He, he had a very hard time. He couldn't do it the same. Uh, no, yeah. seriously. Anyway, so um, this is actually a good time. Uh, so for everyone who's listening, hopefully by now you guys know that we also have a YouTube, uh, a YouTube pretty much slides to go along with our podcast. So, uh, and before we get too far, Dr. Vitterman, can you share your screen for us so that we can have your slides up? for uh, pretty much the viewers on YouTube? Sure can. All right. All right. So Dr. Bitterman is was so gracious. He, he even came with his own slideshow. So I, yeah. I think- uh, First I think time. It, yeah, this is the first. <laughs> so yes. uh, whenever you're ready, Dr. Bitterman, we can get it going. Yeah, and right. we have kind of, a, kind of just an example case and then we'll kind of go into it. So say for example, in your clinic, um, you have a 25-year-old uh, gentleman who plays um, uh, who plays basketball, who was uh, playing playing some basketball, heard a loud pop, actually thought it was gunshot somewhere, and then since then has had ankle pain. And we end up finding out he has an Achilles tendon rupture. Can you kind of just talk about the Achilles tendon, you know, what it is, some of the anatomy, and like, I guess why it's so, you know, important and, you know, some of the things that we may hear about the Achilles tendon in the media? So for all the junior residents that are listening, tuck that history uh, in your brain, because for every time you hear that, if you got a dime, you'd be able to retire very early. But yeah. it's either a gunshot or a baseball bat or someone kicked them. They fall to the ground, they get up, and they look to, the, to find the person that, that hit them or that shot them, and then they fall back down. So the Achilles tendon, it's all over the media. Uh, if you watch sports, it's been raining Achilles tendon tears from the NFL to the NBA. So let's sort of take a dive and jump right in. No financial disclosures relevant to this. What I want to do uh, is keep politics out of this, obviously, but ultimately my goal is to provide a state of the union for the Achilles tendon and, and talk about where we are in 2020. There have been some good uh, manuscripts that have been published most recently in Foot and Ankle International and also some of the sports journals. There's a lot of crossover there. The hot topic tonight will be uh, Achilles tendon ruptures and whether or not there's an underlying role with uh, tendinosis in, in these ruptures. 
So uh, with every orthopedic talk, we got to get through the mundane anatomy, but it's really important. And as we know, the Achilles is made up of uh, multiple muscles in the posterior compartment, uh, the, the posterior aspect of the leg, mainly the gastrocnemius and the soleus. So the gastroc gives you your appearance. Your gastroc gives you your definition, and it crosses three joints. So that's the first uh, barroom trivia question. It crosses the knee, the ankle, and also the subtalar joint, which is frequently forgotten. As I said, it's, it's mainly uh, providing the contour or the sexiness of your calf, and it's filled with fast twitch fibers, as opposed to its close relative, the soleus, which is somewhat deeper um, from the, the gastroc, and it crosses only two joints. So this does not go north of the knee joint and only crosses the ankle and the subtalar joint. And this is more slow, tw slow twitch, and it does not fatigue as easily as the gastrocnemius. The soleus is mainly involved in posture and, and plays a role in holding up your leg. Together they come down and they form the Achilles tendon. Barroom trivia number two is the Achilles tendon is the thickest and strongest tendon in the human body. Not many people realize that, but the Achilles is the largest and strongest tendon. And so I take great pride in that I'm studying this tendon uh, quite frequently, and um, it's exciting to know that. In a 30-year-old, uh, roughly speaking, in the anterior-posterior direction, it's about 6.9 uh, millimeters, so it's pretty thick. And then in the uh, medial to lateral width, obviously it varies whether you're at the myontendinous junction, mid-substance, or even down at the footprint. The course overall, as, uh, as most people know, uh, it starts uh, high up and then comes down and it touches broadly on the Achilles, but it takes a little twist. It internally rotates about 90 degrees and that's where you get a lot of your potential energy as it can store the energy to then recoil, uh, giving you your push off strength. It starts as a flat structure and then becomes ovoid and all of this plays a role uh, in regards to one's function. I put this slide on here to highlight uh, some of the more famous people who have tore their Achilles. Uh, obviously, upper left, rest in peace, Kobe Bryant. But uh, he's one who tore his Achilles and unfortunately never came back to the same level that he was. Kobe part two was never like Kobe part one. Interestingly enough, uh, bottom left corner, Vice President Al Gore, he too sustained an Achilles rupture, as well as The Rock. But most recently in the, in the media, we've seen the comeback of Kevin Durant. He's only played uh, a couple of games thus far, and from the video that I've seen, he's done pretty well. His push-off strength, his ability to drive, dribble and drive has been good, um, and his takeoff speed was reasonable. How it'll play, off, how it'll play out uh, is to be seen. I was just about to say, Dr. Bitterman, we know you, uh, you're, you're a New York guy, and he's in Brooklyn. <laughs> so I was going to see what, what your thoughts were. Are we going all the way, you know? <laughs> well, just because I'm in New York doesn't mean I'm a Nets fan. Oh. Um, Okay. Well, <laughs> I, I, I'm more of a Knicks guy through and through, but, okay, uh, okay. you know, I, I want New York sports to do well because we all know that they have, have not been anywhere near that. Uh, but we'll see. You know, I'm hoping for the best. I'm a Kyrie fan, so I have some, some rooting potential for the Nets. Well, there we go. Um, moving on, his former teammate and most recent uh, Achilles tendon uh, rupturer is Clay Thompson. He had surgery and he's going through the rehab now. If you haven't ever seen an Achilles uh, uh, rupture, well, here is one. Not for the faint of heart, but we're all orthopedists, so we think we'll be able to handle it. 
Oh, as you can see, then. this is a, um, a lineman who is planting his uh, right leg. So there's an eccentric contraction, forced uh, dorsiflexion, and you can see the snap and you can see the recoil. I'll show it one last time. This looks Again, beautiful. right, <laughs> it is. And this is when people say they feel as if they got shot, they got kicked, someone with a baseball bat in the middle of their basketball game, ran out to the court, hit them with the bat, and then ran off. And you but, know what? Since you just mentioned that, that is something that I think is uh, pretty high yield, not just for Achilles tendon ruptures, but a lot of muscle ruptures just overall. What is What, what do you mean by eccentric uh, contraction? Good question. So an eccentric contraction means the, the muscle belly, the muscle tendon is junction is stretching as it contracts, as opposed to a concentric, which is the opposite. It will contract, but the muscle shortens. So in the example of this lineman, his right lower extremity is going through forced dorsiflexion, thereby the gastroxoleus complex is stretching uh, while it's contracting thus the uh, Achilles is going through a significant force nearly 10 times what it what it is on a normal basis uh, and don't forget these these individuals are superhuman right. these are not your your normal uh, five foot 11 125 pound uh, attorney no offense yeah. to attorneys out there <laughs> yeah yeah and I was gonna ask you know we just have a had a bunch of examples of you know people that had these injuries that are, you know, high level sports athletes, are there any, you know, other risk factors um, for patients that have these Achilles tendon ruptures? hundred percent. And uh, you beat me to it, but the, the typical patient that we see uh, is not only one who thinks that they are uh, a professional athlete, but one who has a nine to five job and one who doesn't take care of themselves appropriately. And, and whether they're, male or female, I tend to call them the weekend warrior. And they're the ones that travel on the train to and from their suburban home to the, to the city, go to their, their job, go to their desk job, obviously pre-COVID, uh, and then come home and then try to do what they see on TV on Sunday afternoon. Or they try to emulate Michael Jordan, and that's when they get into trouble. These are people who have training regimens that are horrible. They have terrible form. They're wearing shoes that they've purchased about two years ago. And they've taken uh, antibiotics recently sometimes, or they've been on chronic steroids for a variety of healthcare issues. But some of the extrinsic factors that can play a role here are uh, their duration. If they are not properly warming up and then they go for a 10 mile run when they haven't run in, in weeks, that's a recipe for disaster. Why people don't start off slow and ease up is beyond me. And then when they have these long runs or there's these long activities, their technique and their form goes right into the toilet. Furthermore, uh, their surface or their environment, whether they're running on a solid uh, tar track or asphalt track or one of the newer tracks that has a cushion surface, uh, shoe wear, if they don't redo their shoes or repurchase their shoes. And then uh, obviously if they have some um, abnormality to their collagen or their connective tissue. Certainly that can lead to an abnormality. And, yeah. So um, why these tendon ruptures occur? That's another question that I frequently get asked. And it's a, it's a quality issue. And um, we know that steroids, while they help many things, can affect the quality 
of uh, various tissues in the human body. Uh, and obviously a major no-no um, is cortisone injections at or around the Achilles tendon, the Achilles tendon insertion site. So believe it or not, there are uh, occurrences where uh, people will have cortisone injections nearby, and it sounds ridiculous, but it does happen. The cortisone, steroid injection, steroid injection, cortisone, these are not benign things. And no matter what field of orthopedics you go into, keep in mind that a steroid is not a benign uh, medication. Moving on, there are other factors uh, from a medical standpoint that can play a role. Uh, these are what we term the uh, unholy triad involving high blood pressure, obesity, as well as diabetes. Breaking it down, and I'll, and I'll try to keep everybody from falling asleep, but the basic science behind all of these is that it is, there's a metabolic component. High blood pressure leading to endothelial damage, obesity leading to metabolic abnormalities, and obviously diabetes with high blood glucose um, causing um, uh, too much sugar in the blood having end organ damage can play a role in tendon abnormalities. Additionally, estrogen for uh, women on oral contraceptives or even hormone replacement for various uh, oncological issues or even GYN issues can play a role. So uh, despite us being orthopedics, we still have to go back to Medicine 101, obtaining a full thorough uh, history. And Jay, I hope you're listening. I know sometimes Jay gets emotional, has a little, little bit of estrogen going through his body a lot. So uh, Jay, I hope you're, uh, I hope you're listening to this and, and, and taking note. Okay. I really thought I had your mic muted, but apparently <laughs> uh, must have uh, hit, slipped and hit the button. Uh, yeah. But uh, so Dr. Bitterman, do does sometimes do, do these patients come in and you know is it always oh, I was doing fine and you know I went for a run and next thing you know I felt the pop and what's going on? Or do they say sometimes, you know, I've been having this heel pain or some pain in my foot for some time, you know, but I, I kind of haven't been paying a whole lot of attention to it. I kind of stretch and it feels better. Do you get any of that as well? All the time. And some people will say, yeah, I've had heel pain uh, in the back or I've had heel pain on the bottom, which we know is more of a plantar fascia uh, thing. But the disease process is quite similar. And it's all related to just a tight hamstring, a tight gastroxoleus complex. Um, so that's the question. Is there a prodromal period of pain associated with this? And the answer is, in about 15%, the, uh, the answer is yes. Is there chronic pain associated with this? Most likely. I'll tell you in the younger population, the 20 to 30 to 40 year old range, the answer is usually no. But as you get older into the 60, 70 year old uh, individual, they'll say that they have pain. And the other thing that you have to keep in mind is you have to ask about the other side. Even though the other side is not ruptured, is it waiting to rupture? Is it a pending rupture? Is there significant tendinosis? One of my sayings is that, from what, what has been passed down to me, is that usually normal tendons don't rupture. So, so set, let that set in for a minute. Mm -hmm. And that can be applied to all different areas. Pec tendons that rupture, patella tendons that rupture. If you MRI these, these tendons, uh, you'll see abnormality. Epidemiology. Uh, unfortunately, this is the most commonly ruptured tendon in the body with an increasing incidence uh, in North America. In 2005, it was about roughly seven to 10 per 100,000. And now you can see in 2017, it has increased significantly with women still behind men uh, as far as the numbers are concerned, but uh, everything is increasing. 
Usually this happens in the third to fourth decade of life in men, but in women, it's a little bit older at or around the sixth decade. And I wonder if that has anything to do with the hormone component uh, at or around menopause. Mentioned earlier, the opposite side certainly likes to, to play in the sandbox and these can be contagious. And roughly there's a six to about 30% chance. I know that's a broad range, but you always have to ask about the other side. Um, so don't, don't forget to ask about the uninjured side just to educate the patient and it's good to be thorough. And you just, asked about that, you asked that in, in all patients or like if, you know, in our, in our, in their athletes, you're asking that too, or are you asking that in these patients that had prodromal symptoms and then they had this, um, this injury? Everybody. So even if they don't have any prodromal symptoms, it's good to ask if they don't have any prodromal symptoms on the injured side, I still ask if they have. Uh, pain or had pain on the other side. And then sometimes they'll say, oh yeah, you know, now that you bring it up, doc, that's a good point. Uh, yeah. It's not going to change my management on the injured side, obviously, but it's worth noting because you may need to MRI the other side. Okay. Now we know who gets it, but more into the why. Uh, I mentioned the unholy triad, but certainly this boils down to inflammation, microtrauma, and hypovascularity. Blood supply is our uh, holy grail in orthopedics. If we mess up someone's blood supply or they come to us with a, an abnormal blood supply, we know that bone and soft tissue won't heal. So certainly uh, there is a load or mechanical stress to these tendons. And when you have these larger individuals, men or women, they're putting extraordinarily high loads of stress on an anatomic body part that's not designed for that. Uh, roughly 10 to 15 times. So if you think of that, there's really not many other areas in the world that can tolerate that stress without failing. Yet in professional athletics, uh, these, these legs are getting these traumas all the time. And it's kind of surprising and shocking if you think about it, that we're not having more Achilles ruptures. But unfortunately, with poor training regimens, COVID-19, seasons ending and then a new season beginning, no warm-up period, yada, yada, yada. Uh, I think that's one of the theories that I have as far as why the NFL had an increase and why the, NF, uh, the NBA too, but we shall see, or, or shall I say basketball as a whole? Yeah, I was just going to ask, um, is there any way as far as preventing these injuries, you know, is it just stretching beforehand? Is that the main thing to prevent these types of injuries? You know, like what do you, just proper warm up, or is there any other, any other ways that people can say, well, you know, be cognizant of, um, of not having this happen? I always tell patients that I think stretching is key. Uh, a stretching program, not just of the leg, but the upper thigh, the buttocks, the hamstrings, the quads, because I think it all plays a role in landing mechanics uh, for those that are doing like a jumping activity. Uh, a lot of research obviously has been done with the ACL, the, the non-contact valgus rota uh, rotational injury. And I think that can be um, elaborated on more and focused more on the uh, Achilles. So to answer your question, it's always stretch, 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 and, and try and avoid the explosive maneuvers, but that's easier said than done. Absolutely. And yeah, and so what, what are some of the things, say, you know, what, when these patients are in the clinic, what are some of the things you're looking for? Well, we talked about the history, really, but on, on physical exam, even, what are some of the things you're looking for in the office? So the exam is generally speaking clinical. And I say generally speaking because I MRI them and I'll get into that. But if you look at the upper right-hand corner, this is a professional hockey player that I met and treated. And 
the question to you and your listeners is which is the injured side? So the one in the foreground is the patient's right, right, right ankle and the far is the left. So if you picked an intern, you would hope that they would say the injured ankle is the one in the foreground, which is the gentleman's right ankle, because that's the one that has the loss of the resting plantar flexion tone from a normal intact Achilles. Right. Dr. Bitterman, Cody was over there hoping that you didn't ask for him to <laughs> pick which leg. And, he is and, so glad that you didn't ask. And, and what we're referring to is, is a mat leaf, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, where you, we have our patients prone, um, you have their knees flexed, and you look from the side, and you look at the different levels of, uh, of the foot, and if you see one is more dorsiflexed than the other, that would clue you in or be a positive test that this may, you know, be an uh, Achilles tendon uh, rupture. Usually I give out uh, a six pack of beer for someone who gets it right, but people <laughs> will think that this was fixed and set up. So I can't do that. Oh, oh man. man. <laughs> um, but the classic study or the classic test is the Thompson sign, the Thompson test. And that's basically seen on the bottom uh, right hand side where the patient is lying prone. Their heel is either off the bed or their leg is bent. And then you squeeze the calf. And if you see a normal um, uh, plantar flexion bounce, if you will, if you will, to the foot and always compare it to the other side, that would be a negative Thompson test. A positive Thompson test is when they have no ability to have the active or passive uh, plantar flexion tone. And obviously go back to your basic exam abilities and palpate and frequently you will feel a large defect even if there even if there's uh, an acute rupture within hours of presentation however about a quarter of these are missed believe it or not and they're missed mm -hmm. in all settings uh, i can say for a fact that they're missed not only in the er or the urgent care but in other doctors offices and even other musculoskeletal specialists so i know that i know what you think so when you say when you have someone who has this type of like a rupture, Achilles tendon rupture, you find out later they have one and you're, you're palpating the, the tendon, but it almost, it feels like it's intact. And uh, I think that happens to me one time. We, we still did all the appropriate imaging and we found out later, but I, I thought to myself, like it might've actually been the hematoma that I was feeling that made it feel like his tendon was intact. Cause actually when we looked later, I mean, it was clearly, there was a separation there, but when I was, kind of palpating for it it felt like it was there like when you looked on mri well yeah like when we did the mri later okay. it was he had a i mean he clearly had a, a a rupture there but when you actually just kind of palpated with your hand it, it didn't really feel like it was ruptured he wasn't in a whole lot of pain which i don't think these guys are always in a whole lot of pain but uh yeah it was just something i noticed so my response to that is um, yeah, I agree. And the, the way that I explain it to patients and teach the residents is this is almost like a, a paintbrush. If you take a paintbrush and you face it directly at you, there's, there's a thousand bristles. And when an Achilles tendon is non-functional, you can still have intact fibers. So go back to that, that paintbrush. Some of the, if you have 50% of the fibers that are no longer intact, yes, you still have a partially intact Achilles but it's not functioning the way that it, a normal one would. So you can feel the hematoma. You can also feel intact Achilles, but if it's mm -hmm. not, you know, if you have a positive Thompson, that's because uh, it, part of the tendon is torn such that it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. 
Absolutely. Another hot topic in uh, the Achilles is obviously DVTs. And this is a hot topic in every lower extremity and even upper extremity uh, musculoskeletal issue. But I will tell you, uh, Virchow's triad plays a major role here. And it's always important to assess for a clot. But it's difficult to assess a clot. You squeeze the person's calf, they'll jump. You don't know if they're jumping from a, from a blood clot or from the Achilles rupture. So keep that in mind and have a low threshold to get a duplex ultrasound. And obviously when these patients are not mobile, uh, not mobile, excuse me, they're in a boot, they're mobilized, they're in a splint or even a cast, they're not moving their ankle. And just that limited motion to that lower extremity puts them at an elevated risk. They have the endothelial image uh, injury, they're uh, immobilized. It's a recipe for disaster. So a blood clot as seen here is uh, a significant issue. Another issue uh, or another area to focus on is um, prodromal utilization of uh, fluoroquinolones or uh, proceeding uh, the injury with fluoroquinolones, antibiotics, or even steroids. The list of them are on the sides. Always be thorough and get as much information as you can. Now, unfortunately, it's not gonna change much. It's not gonna change your management or it shouldn't, but it's important to, to let the patient know that this could be related. Uh, and obviously there's an FDA black box warning now, so it's, it's pretty prevalent, it's out there, and patients know about it. And so on to the next part are, you know, does the location of the tear make a difference? It most certainly does, especially in my office. Uh, the location not only dictates how it could have happened to some extent, but also what you're going to do about it. And the reason that comes up is because you can tear it at the insertion, which would be a heel avulsion. And frequently keep in mind that there could be some bone attached. It could be a mid-substance tear right in the central third at the hypovascular zone, about two to six centimeters proximal from the insertion, or it could be much more proximal at the myotendinous junction. The issue is uh, you have to have different equipment available for uh, the various types. If it's a heel avulsion, you gotta be able to anchor it back down to the calcaneus. If it's a mid-substance, you may wanna utilize the proprietary technique. And if it's a myotendinous, the repair is difficult because you gotta put suture through muscle and muscle doesn't hold suture uh, as well. So sometimes you have to make a bigger incision, gather more muscle, danger zone with the sural nerve. So keep that in mind. Furthermore, this also plays a role in your rehab. Uh, you may not want to get a myotendinous going as quickly in my opinion, because there's always a risk of uh, elongation. And I'll talk about that shortly. So do you Boom. always, um, sorry to interrupt, do you always okay. get MRIs with all of, anytime you suspect an Achilles tendon tear, do you always get an MRI to, and then you kind of determine where your tear is, uh, what level it is from there? I do. We, what I found is my estimation is not as perfect as I thought it was. So I'll palpate, I'll feel what I think is a defect. And I'm like, oh, this is 100% mid-substance and I'll get the MRI and it's actually much more proximal. The, the thing that I'm feeling is either the uh, distal stump has retracted a little bit or it's lost its tension. So if it's a myotendinous uh, tear, it'll retract a little bit. There's not as much uh, distal retraction as there is proximal in my opinion, but now I'll feel it more in the mid-substance, but it's actually supposed to be at the myotendinous. That's number one. Number two is I wanna show the patient how good or how bad their tear is. I wanna show the patient how tendinotic their Achilles is 
so that they know six months from now, why are they building up so much scar tissue? Well, maybe it's because your tendon is not normal. Or how did I tear, how did I tear this, doc? I'm 26 years old. What do you mean I have an Achilles tendon rupture? Well, here's the proof. Your tendon is not normal by any stretch. You have all of this abnormal signal within it. So the answer to your question is yes, IMRI, nearly 100% of them. Uh, and some people look at me like I'm crazy because yes, it is a clinical diagnosis, but I want all of that information for the dialogue and for the expectations. Is there any role for uh, ultrasound for with you? Indeed, there is, uh, because that's obviously what they call the stethoscope of today uh, is the ultrasound. So I use it in uh, certain scenarios where I'm having difficulty getting an MRI or there's a time constraint for certain athletes. Um, but my go-to is almost like a, an automatic MRI. Yeah. Awesome. So a couple studies briefly is that uh, in 2013, Raken in Philadelphia mentioned that myotendinous healing is, is fairly reliable. This was a study in 30 patients. So I use that when I speak to, to patients with an upper tear. I say, hey, I'd be happy to fix it, but they're fairly reliable in their healing. And also tendinosis is at the area of the tear, but also above and below. So again, a normal tendon, in my opinion, doesn't tear. Here's an example of an open uh, Achilles tendon rupture, just to highlight the anatomy of what it looks like. Um, distal is to the left of the screen and proximal is to the right of the screen. And uh, you can see the um, plantaris as well as the proximal myotendinous region and some of the distal uh, Achilles. It doesn't tear as a clean cut, it tears as an explosion usually. And there are fibers going in all different directions. It kind of looks like a pretty distinct mess uh, once you get in there. But you want to try and preserve as much of the peritoneum. Again, this is not doing that. Uh, but I just want to highlight this picture uh, to show you the anatomy. So ultimately, it comes down to what are we going to do for this? Are we going to treat it surgically? Or are we going to treat it conservatively? And that's where you have to put your uh, decision-making algorithm hat on. And, and weigh the risks and benefits of both. Ultimately, you wanna restore the length and tension ratio associated with a tendon and a muscular tendinous uh, junction um, with an abnormal length tension uh, unit. That's when your strength is gonna be abnormal and that's ultimately gonna lead to your abnormality with function. So two, sir, uh, sorry, excuse me, multiple surgical options exist. My uh, go-to is the smallest open incision possible. So I say that because sometimes I use the upper right hand proprietary jig and sometimes I don't. If it's a myotendinous junction, I find I have difficulty getting suture capture in the more proximal muscular or myotendinous zone and it just pulls right out. And then also we can never forget about our non-operative treatment, just to be thorough. Is that that PARS system um, in that top right? Yeah, so the upper right-hand uh, corner is the uh, PARS, Arthrex, full disclosure. I have no uh, financial relationship with them. Okay. Yes. Now, Aretha Franklin always said to R-E-S-P-E-C-T, and that's very important when it comes to treating these surgically because the vascularity is going to give you your outcome. If you're 
violent with the soft tissue. You're going to be violent with the blood supply. The, the um, arteries are going to be blasted, and then there's going to be no return to blood supply. As you see on the uh, pictures here, one is a diagram depicting the robust or uh, lack thereof to the Achilles tendon and to the myotendinous junction. But centrally, at the hypovascular zone, it's mainly a lateral blood supply. Therefore, we go more posterior medial. Uh, it's important to understand that when you're getting in these cases, not to just follow the attending's role, but to see why he or she is doing it that way. There's always a method to our madness, and it's mainly to respect the blood supply. So when you're doing your approach, I, I like to, to tell my residents to make sure that there is as little grabbing as possible. Retract it gently with a Sen retractor, but don't go pinching the tissue with an Adsen or a, a heavy pickup. That's gonna squeeze the tissue, squeeze the paratenon, and lead to uh, problems with vascularity later. We know that the paratenon is the key for healing. It's the key to nutrition. And uh, I usually go posterior medial, depending on if I have to go distal, I will go posterior medial, angle centrally, and then kind of curve over uh, in a medial direction, just because you have to keep in mind shoe wear later on, they can get irritation to the incision. And really quick, before you go into this, what is your um, conversation like with the patient when you're talking about operative versus not operative treatment? Because I had a patient the other day and we spent about 20 minutes talking about uh, you know, he was like, oh, should I get this fixed? You know, young guy, you know, tore it, playing basketball. Um, and, you know, we spent about 20 minutes talking about if you should get it fixed versus not. So what is your conversation like? It's just maybe from my own knowledge, but what, what do you say? So I start off and I say, whether you fix this or not, you're looking at a one-year recovery. Again, plus or minus a couple of weeks, months, whatever. Uh, I say, I can fix it tomorrow. It's a one-year recovery or we can do non-surgical treatment and it's a one-year recovery. So that they have to digest first. Then I tell them or I gauge where they're at. Are they someone who thinks that they are the next best thing since Michael Jordan? Or are they happy with going to their day job, doing their thing and then going home? So you have to gauge that very quickly because some people will look at you and say, you're treating me non-surgically doctor, you're crazy or they'll get your opinion, they'll go and see someone else, and then they will uh, kind of be flabbergasted that someone told them that non-surgical was even an option. Could be a, could be a regional thing, but that's, that's what I do as a second thing. And then I get into, well, it's all about length and tension. What are your goals? Do you wanna be able to get back on the basketball court because you're a division one athlete or you're a high level a high school athlete? Sure. I would argue you should fix that. If you are uh, a 50 or 45 year old male or female who um, you know, plays softball and was rounding third to come home and that's when they tore it, you know what, I'm wrapping up my career doc, I'm done. That I would say you could treat non-surgically. If they wanna get back out there, uh, you have to explain that their gait may not be the same. So that's the next thing that I get into. I talk about the, the uh, length tension ratio, the ability to regain your full push-off strength, lack thereof. They want to know what that means. Again, we say push-off strength because we're in the field, but patients want to know that they may have a limp. Um, they want to know if they won't be able to do their 12-mile walk on the boardwalk anymore. Uh, so that's how I kind of highlight it. And then I say, there is a, the next option is um, re-tearing. 
If you don't do surgery, there's a slightly higher risk, depending on the study you read, depending on the statistical significance you quote, yada, yada, yada. There's a slightly higher risk that you may retear. Well, doctor, if I'm going to retear, why don't I do surgery? Well, surgery is not benign. Surgery has risks that we always take for granted until it's too late or until a complication happens. And if you haven't seen an Achilles tendon uh, wound dehiscence, it's a nightmare. Uh, and so they, they do oh, happen. I've seen it. Right. And if a surgeon ever tells you uh, that they've never had one, then obviously they're lying or they're not doing enough surgery or, you know, so, but all of that is what goes into my conversation. So I kind of break it down into those four or five uh, hot topics to feed to the patient. And then they kind of, they, they get it. And then the, the other thing that I say is I say, listen, Kevin Durant, Kobe Bryant, blah, blah, blah. It took them a year to get back and they weren't even the same, right? You are not a professional athlete. You don't have the healthcare that they have at their beck and call. And it still took them 11 months to a year to get better. So I, I really lay the smack down as far as expectations from day one. Yeah. Because I think that's most important. I agree. I think it's totally important. Whoever's listening, I hope they, you know, rewind that and listen to that past five minutes like that was some um some good information i know jay jay's over there taking notes flabbergasted so he, he just he doesn't say that to people but uh no but really i mean i think it's something that's really common uh you know everyday people get this all the time and you know some of your friends gonna get this you're gonna hear about it and they're gonna ask you like hey what you think i need to do and i mean you really do just have to kind of lay it out and let them know both ways you know uh but like you say surgery isn't benign so there's some risk with that and there's also some risk with non-operative uh, management too. You just have to kind of pick what better, what's better for, you know, for, for yourself. So I'm glad that we spent some time talking about that. Yeah. So this, this study uh, is a recent study from 2015 that just goes over the uh, biomechanics and compares open repair to, to some minimally invasive techniques. Bottom line, I, I don't want to take up too much time just highlighting these studies, but bottom line is there's no, no difference in the total number with regards to, from uh, failure with regards to uh, open versus PARS. So um, you, you can do it open, you can do it minimally invasive. Again, smallest incision, if you're going to do surgery, smallest incision with early recovery is key. So virtually, let's go around the internet and see, does anybody want to fix it? or not fix it. So I'll put you guys on the spotlight. What would you want to do? Uh, you go uh, first, Cody. Well, I mean, just like you said, it depends on, um, depends on the patient's activity level. If they're, they're the starting running back for, you know, the college team, then I'd say go and fix it. If it's a 50 year old guy and went out and thought he can play basketball and hoop and, um, and he sustained this injury, I'd probably say just uh, not off it. But Cody, what if he's like, a, you know, a 27, 28 year old third year resident who who think he's like athletic, but he he does this podcast. Man, and this, uh, Jay, he's, he's, his, his, his name is Cody. What, what, what do you think he would do? Like, which way you think he would go? Oh, man, I don't, I don't know. I'd, I'd probably elect to have it have it fit. Not saying that that fits my description, but if I was, you know, this hypothetical person, you know, I may elect to have it fixed. By you, Jay. I, I, I don't know, man. I was thinking about the same thing. I really don't know which route I would go. So this would be my thing. I would want to know how soon can I go back to work, right? Because, you know, as a resident, you just feel like if you miss it, you know, if you miss 
a half a day, you really feel like you just let the whole team down. The whole world is against you now. You got to really get back out there. Uh, so I would just want to know how soon can I get back to uh, doing my job officially as a resident. I need to, I need to see my consoles. I got to be able to walk around the hospital. I need to be, be able to stand up for long periods of time in the OR. And I don't, I can't be out, out of this for six months or whatever. I'm like, what, what do I have to do to get back as soon as possible? And I don't know, I would decide between that, but that would probably be my driving force. I, I, I agree. And I think uh, those are great comments. Um, if you choose surgery, obviously you got to get on the surgical schedule and that depends on your surgeon. That depends on availability. That depends on a lot of things. Uh, not every surgeon can put you on the schedule for tomorrow. It may be a week. And if it's a week, that's a week that you then have to wait before you're more active because not only do you have to uh, get the surgery done, but you have to wait for the incision to heal before you're more active. Um, as opposed to non-surgical, the clock starts right then and there. You, you get into a cast, you go into a plantar flexion uh, cam walking boot, and then you go on your way. Again, obviously, the details of the rehab vary, but many important questions that come into play. I will tell you, I have an, uh, a colleague who was never a believer, um, and I don't want to sell the, the non-surgical treatment because I'm a surgeon and I operate on these all the time, but he was not a believer of the conservative treatment. He thought I was crazy until a middle-aged uh, patient came in and I treated him non-surgically. At around the seven-month mark, he was as if nothing ever happened. And from that day forward, that associate of mine has now become a believer with the non-surgical treatment. Yeah, that'll make you believe, right? If, if you go through it, for sure. Exactly. So the winner with regards to treat it or not treat it is we still don't know. And I don't think that there is a true full consensus. Don't, don't come at me, but I think that there is no definitive treatment with regards to an Achilles tendon rupture. I think it's a fluid situation. I think each one uh, is different. So when there's a clinical question uh, with regards to a, a particular topic, we're all intelligent. What do we do? We go to PubMed. So I did exactly that. I looked on PubMed and I said, well, what's the best way to get better from an Achilles tendon rupture? Typed it in and boom, I got 570 results. So guys, what does that tell you? What does it tell us, Dr. Bitterman? It tells us that we have no idea to some extent what's going on. <laughs> you know, every, and again, I, I'm not trying to be standoffish, but everybody has an opinion and that's good. We're all strong personality uh, individuals, but these are five, roughly 570 uh, thought leaders giving uh, a paper on Achilles tendon rehabilitation. So there's not one good way, uh, except my way, as we know. Yeah, there we go. Uh, right. Uh, in our own little bubble. But we need to get better. And the problem is, is that these studies are comparing oranges to apples, apples to oranges, and, and it's not really giving us great uh, information that we can apply. So what I do is I go to this landmark study with regards to uh, operative versus non-operative treatment and how to fully uh, rehab. And what it boils down to is a lengthy functional rehab, which I'll show you, which was very successful. And in my hands, it continues to be successful. So what I go to is this, and I'm happy to share this, but this is a JBJS article, which goes through uh, their protocol. And some are arguing now that even that zero to two week non-weight bearing timeframe, if you're doing it non-surgically, Get them up and walking in a plantar flex, uh, either cast or boot with lifts right away. 
Obviously, if they're doing uh, surgery, you have to be careful of the wound because a dehiscence is, is a tragedy and should be uh, avoided at all costs. With regards to repairing it, this is an interesting study outside of the United States where they put these metal beads into the tendon. And you can see why it likely was not done here in the United States, but it was uh, pretty cool in that they fixed these tendons, they put these um, radio opaque um, beads in the tendon and then they watched them and they used three different rehabilitation protocols for 75 patients, roughly non-weight bearing, non-weight bearing with range of motion, uh, and then partial weight bearing right away. And uh, what they saw is at around the six to 12 week mark, the repair, which we spent 25 minutes, you know, tying down and doing all different fancy figure of eights or wrapping around or pars or whatnot, uh, it lengthens. So your repair to bring these areas together lengthens over time. Now, thankfully, uh, there was no real difference in primary outcome, but potentially could too much length be a bad thing? And, and I think that's an important question that we don't have a, a full uh, breadth of information on. But um, I thought that was interesting. I wanted to share that. And obviously this happens because when you do the, when you have the tear, whether you fix it or not, the, the muscle atrophies, the muscle goes through remodeling and to get it down to a basic science, the, the sarcomeres are eliminated, okay? So the basic science unit of a muscle atrophies and it goes away. And as a result, that puts more tension on the tendon. So what you're just spent, what you're trying to get to sort of congeal in a tighter fashion to make sure that that length tension ratio uh, maintains itself it's now, it's now um, stretching. And that I think is why we have to push these patients to start putting weight on them right away to avoid the atrophy. Because you've seen these post-op patients, their, their legs look like twigs compared to the other side. Moving right along, jumping to complications, which is what we hate. Absolutely. But ultimately, um, the worst outcomes were the non-operatively treated, um, with an extended, uh, with early immobilization, had a higher chance of re-rupture. So I use this, but obviously this is, you have to take this with a grain of salt, right? Because I personally don't really immobilize them. I'll put them in a boot, but I don't want them to dorsiflex beyond uh, neutral. But is that the same type of immobilization that these patients went through? Um, so the best way, the best outcome, again, is minimally invasive, smallest open approach with an accelerated rehab protocol. Gave you the highest probability of the best management. And again, the worst was non-operative extended uh, immobilization. Seems pretty straightforward. So uh, again, uh, I've been through a lot of, of, of talking and I, I hope you guys are getting something out of it, but what do we Definitely. do with everything? What do we do with all this information and what, what is next? Well, some final questions that I pose to, to you guys um, that are in residency, finishing residency, starting residency, looking for things to explore. Do normal tendons rupture? Meaning if I take a normal tendon and I just pull it beyond belief, will it just snap? Those who get the rupture, can we figure out why it happened? Can we figure out or could we have figured out who was at high risk? And also what is considered high risk? Is it the athlete or is it the average Joe? Does the lengthening in that study, does that really mean anything as far as weakness and how can we measure that? And also how can we prevent it? 
is this really a career ending injury or what I say more of a career modifying injury? When I see a calcaneus fracture, I tell patients it's a life altering injury. Whether you're 55 or you're 35, your foot is not gonna be the same. Is the Achilles tendon rupture a career modifier? I think so. Do we really know when these patients are ready or fit to, re to return to sport? Obviously a hot topic in the ACL world, uh, are they getting back too soon? And then that's what's causing a re-rupture. Are these patients getting back too soon? And that's why they're not succeeding. Kevin Durant, interestingly enough, he not only had his injury, his recovery, but he had a little bit of an extended recovery time because of COVID. And then what does the surrounding tendinosis really mean? Is it important? I think it is. I think it plays a role. That's why I get the MRI. Yeah. So some final take-home points, uh, and then I'll be happy to hand it over. But these, these injuries do not occur in a vacuum. Again, when we're in residency, we see everything in the, as the ER, get them out, splint and send out, and, and let someone else deal with it. And when we're in the office, we talk to them. But these are problems that I think have other issues that need to be addressed. Look for risk factors. Try and figure out what they are. Are there any that are modifiable, especially for the contralateral issues? If you do decide to operate, or even if you don't, understand that blood supply plays a role in the disease process and also the pathology of the tear. Non-op, as mentioned before, gets you right back to work. Get, get you right back to work the next day. Operative, well, yeah, you can work before your surgery, but afterwards I tell patients to take at least a week or two off because if you're up and you're sitting or your leg is in a dependent position, you're gonna swell. That swelling is gonna put stress on the wound that wound can then pop and again, nightmare. Talk to the patient about their goals, figure out what it is that they wanna do uh, and don't compare um, your patient from yesterday to your patient today. Everybody's different. Patients will compare themselves outside of the office, but it's our job to make sure that they understand the differences and then communicate expectations. That's I think paramount. So. Go no, go ahead. I was going to say, Dr. Ben, excellent talk. And I only had a couple of questions. Um, one, if you have a patient, you know, they have, they're diagnosed with Achilles tendon rupture, you go in and you see there's a large gap, you know, almost a four, four or five centimeter gap. Do you ever use any other techniques like a VY turndown or, or advancement or like a, uh, any of those other techniques for these, you know, larger defects? I do. Uh, and I think the bigger question is, you have to know that ahead of time, okay? Because if you're doing an acute rupture, theoretically, you know the distance and it shouldn't be a problem. If it's a chronic rupture or a rupture that's been lost in follow-up and had problems getting cleared and then uh, gets on your OR schedule four to six weeks later, has been walking on it, I mean, that's a whole other issue. But uh, if, you're, if you do need or if, you're, if you do have concerns about needing one of those modalities, you have to I consent for it because it's a, it's, a, it's a separate procedure to some extent, and there are risks. They can become weaker. They can, uh, it's a bigger incision, um, but I have used VY advancements. The other thing that we should talk about briefly uh, is the FHL, um, mm -hmm. FHL transfers. I don't do that usually for primary repairs because I'm not doing a primary repair in someone that needs augmentation from an FHL, usually speaking. Does that make sense? Yeah, makes sense. So, so usually more so something uh, more chronic. Correct. I'll do yeah. the FHL if there's a chronic 
issue or they have weakness and they need supplementation, I'll do the uh, FHL. Are you ever thinking about like some kind of um, allograft or anything like that? I, I have used it uh, in very rare occasions. Uh, usually it's like a revision scenario. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had uh, a 60 year old gym rat guy, uh, you know, who goes to the gym and he had a chronic tear and all I did was an FHL on him because I didn't want to do a VY. I didn't want to do a turndown. I didn't want to do an allograft. Um, and he did great. You know, I was worried about his return to the gym and I saw him recently and he was loving it. So it's all about expectations. If you tell them that you you may be able to do the gym, but you may not be able to run 12 miles, sometimes they get it. The more reasonable people will understand. Love it. And so I think we, we talked about a lot of high yield things. We went over the anatomy with the Achilles. Uh, we, we talked a whole lot about, you know, how operative versus non-op. There's no clear winner between those two, but you, you know, you should definitely know the differences in a way to explain it to your patients. Um, we talked about how they normally present. I really do think that pop or the shot in the heel or something like that. You hear some story like that every time. It's really interesting how everyone's explained it's the same. Uh, and thank you so much for even going through how to how to treat some of these, some of the more chronic injuries too. I actually think that's high yield. If you do any questions on this, it's going to come up about the uh, FHL augmentation, the VY uh, advancements, and you know sometimes even the allographs for like large chronic tears and things like that. So just overall, thank you, Dr. Bitterman, for this talk. Uh, for those who are not on our YouTube, Dr. Bitterman has actually uh, put his email address on here as well. Like it's A-B-I-T-T-E-R-M-A-N at northwell.edu. Uh, so yes, uh, thank you so much, Dr. Bitterman, for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me and feel free to reach out, email or social media at Dr. Adam Bitterman at D-R-A-D-A-M-B-I-T-T-E-R-M-A-N. Thanks a lot, guys. If that was your first time listening to our podcast, please hit the subscribe button and don't forget to leave a review in iTunes. And for show notes, of course, you can always go to nailedithortho.com and find all the show notes. So if you want something to quickly look over after this or tomorrow to solidify it in your brain, you can do that. Until next time.